Wonderful. Well, I do hope that uh, the homework that I set you all last week has been profitable. I won't ask uh, who's done it, um, but for those who were with us, it was really to read and to contemplate uh, Philippians 2, the first few letters, uh, sorry, first few chapters, verses, I'll get there in the end, of Philippians 2, and allow the truth of the words uh, in, in the power of God's Holy Spirit to really minister to us and to reveal in our hearts those selfish areas in our, in our life that may well be hindering us back from our relationship with God and with other people. So I do hope that that was profitable. If you haven't done so, I encourage you again to do that this coming week. But if you have your Bibles with you, please turn with me to Luke 9 as we continue a journey through Luke's letter. Luke 9, starting at verse 51. It's a bit warm, isn't it? Windows are open. Yeah, I, I mean, if you're by a window and you're getting warm, please feel free to open a window. Don't feel you, you, you have to sit and sweat. It's okay to open the windows and things. Okay, so Luke 9, verse 51 says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went to another village. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the richness and the goodness of the truth found in your word. We thank you that it brings life to our bones, Lord, and it's life-saving and life-transforming. So this morning, Lord, we pray that you will speak to us. Lord, encourage us all to open our hearts to hear your, the truth that you have for us and our ears to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So last week, if you remember, I mentioned that we're at the beginning, or beginning to see a shift in Jesus' focus. This isn't a shift in Jesus' mission, but a shift in Jesus' focus. Jesus' mission on the earth has never changed. It's never changed. It was always the same, a mission that saw him come to free the world from the grip of sin and evil and to provide freedom and hope to a lost world. Amen. To offer salvation to all people and to gift salvation to those who would surrender their lives to him and place their trust and their faith in him. From the beginning of Jesus' ministry, his focus had been on the tasks that God the Father had set for him. 
some examples of those. Jesus was to usher in the kingdom of God by preaching the good news. We saw this back in Luke 4, when Jesus turned and said, and I quote, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus also came to seek and save the lost. We see this play out in the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector, when Jesus asked him to come down from the tree and said to him, I'm coming to your house today. And on arriving, Jesus said, and I quote, today's salvation has come to this house since he, Zacchaeus, also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Jesus sought people out, showing his heart to reach those who didn't yet know him. And he healed and saved people, showing his power and authority over all creation. And thirdly, but nowhere near least, Jesus came to bring restoration. Jesus came to fix what had been broken ever since the fall of the human race back in the Garden of Eden. Since that point, sin had affected humanity. But God promised the Messiah who would come and bring restoration to the world. And now that Messiah had arrived in the person of Jesus the Christ and the method in which this restoration would happen and it was on the cross in Jerusalem as we have journeyed together with Jesus and his disciples we have seen this shift in Jesus's teaching toward his disciples and in the events that have been leading up to this very point We first saw it clearly when Jesus taught the disciples what his primary purpose for coming was and what his role as Christ would entail, and that would be his death and resurrection on the cross, or death on the cross and his resurrection from death. We saw it in its first instance in Luke 9, when Jesus said, and I quote, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and then on the third day be raised. This was then followed by Jesus taking James and Peter and John up onto the mountain to witness this remarkable event. As they were on the mountain praying and before their very eyes, Jesus was transformed We are told, and I quote, his face altered and his clothes become dazzling white. What a thing to witness. But then standing with him was Moses and Elijah. This wasn't a general catch-up. They hadn't just popped down from heaven to see how he's doing. You know, Jesus didn't stand there with them saying, all right, lads, how's it up there? Moses, you're looking after my roses, all that type of thing. No. This visit was no coincidence. It was intentional. There was a purpose 
of this visit and that was to discuss Jesus' exodus from the world. Moses and Elijah, Luke 9 says, appeared in glory and spoke of his, Jesus' departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Then Jesus, whilst amongst the crowds, after releasing the boy from the grips of the demon, turned round to his disciples and for a third time clearly says, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. Jesus knew the journey to mission completion was coming, which is why he was preparing his disciples. And today, in our passage that we have just read, this journey begins. So for ease of use, as we journey through this passage, I've split it into three sections. And the first of these sections is... Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. So Luke tells us this in the opening passage in verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. This verse gives us the sense of, uh, of being pre-prepared, pre-planned, this pre-planned divine moment in time that contains two interesting aspects. The first of those is that this day for him to be taken up is literally approaching. Is literally approaching. And the other gives us this sense of this completion. Something is coming to an end. Now it would be easy to assume that this verse speaks of Jesus's coming crucifixion but we've got to think wider than that his being taken up as the verse says in fact refers to his moment of departure his moment of ascension back to the right hand of God the Father in heaven which would be preceded by the completion of his mission on earth which included this journey to Jerusalem, this journey to the cross, his death on the cross, his resurrection from death, and then leading to this moment where he ascends to heaven. We also get this sense from this verse that Jesus was intentional in turning his face toward Jerusalem. The words on the page make it sound like this was a straightforward decision. We can fall into that trap sometimes, can't we? When we read the pages, the words on the page, we just take them at face value. We don't often think about what those words actually meant back then, the emotional, the physical aspects of it. I can't help feel that... It wasn't as easy as we might think and as we might read on the page. At the very least, 
this impending series of unpleasant events would have been lingering in Jesus's mind. Probably we can only assume from what we read in scripture from that first point when he says to his disciples what he has come to do. It would have been tough to live with, wouldn't it? Knowing what you have to do. We know Jesus was sorrowful. We know Jesus was distressed about the road of torture and death that he had to take. We get a glimpse of this in the Garden of Gethsemane, don't we? When Jesus turns around and he says, My Father, if it is possible, let this cup of suffering be taken from me. Yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. Wow. Now we will never truly know how Jesus felt in those weeks and those days leading to Golgotha, but I do think that in some small part we can relate. Have you ever had a pending meeting or a pending event or something coming up that you're just not looking forward to. I'm sure many of us in here have had and will have in the future. You just get this sense of, well, it just looms in the back of your mind, doesn't it? It just sits there, just pricking at you. And you get, that, you get the butterflies and the sickness when you think about it in your stomach. I wonder if this is how Jesus felt leading up to this moment where his face turns to Jerusalem but probably even worse because he now knows that he's on his way to Jerusalem but Jesus was faithful to the call upon his life the mission set before him however hard that was going to be and I say praise God and hallelujah that, that he was faithful to that call. Because where would every single one of us be if he turned around and said, Lord, I can't. Heavenly Father, I can't. Where would we be? Where would our hope come from? We would be lost. We would all in this room who hasn't already accepted Jesus as Lord and Saviour feel the full wrath of God's judgment upon us because of our natural desire to rebel against him, our creator. Praise God that he was faithful, even though he may well have not wanted to go through with this. So number two, second, if you will, section that I've broken this down into is Jesus' messengers rejected. So the time had come for the journey to begin. And we read in verse 52 that he, Jesus, sent messengers ahead of himself who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. The Samaritans were a people group 
made up of Jews and of Gentiles who dwelt in Samaria, a region just north of Jerusalem and sandwiched between Galilee in the north and Judea in the south. Sort of sandwiched right in the middle of these two. And in Jesus' day, the Jewish people of Galilee and Judea, they shunned, they disliked the Samaritan people, viewing them as a heretical people who just practiced an impure, half-pagan religion, if you will. Now, the most direct route from Galilee to Jerusalem was, where do you think? Straight through, straight through the middle of Samaria, which took about three days. But due to the hostility between the Jews and the Samaritans, many Jews preferred to walk the long way round. So round the outskirts of Samaria to bypass this hostility. But not Jesus. No, not Jesus. Jesus challenges this thinking quite possibly, maybe, he wants to go through Samaria on his way to Jerusalem, maybe to reach the people, to show there's another way, a different way of thinking. Who knows? The passage doesn't tell us. Now, the passage also doesn't indicate why Jesus sent the messengers before himself. It doesn't seem that they were sent to prepare Jesus to preach doesn't tell us that. It also doesn't tell us or indicate that the messengers were sent there to preach the good news on behalf of Jesus also. Though we have to be realistic, there is a strong possibility that there was some preaching done, or would have been done, should I say, if they'd allowed them to be there. I would suggest that it was more to do with giving the Samaritans time to prepare for such a large group of people. We can forget, can't we, that, and I did this for years, whenever you hear, and Jesus and his followers, Jesus, you know, and his followers, you just naturally assume that, oh, it's just the 12. Remember, Jesus' followers, there were quite a few followers, probably, potentially, in the hundreds. That was quite a big group of people. For those of you who live in a village here, could you imagine a few hundred people just rocking up one day, may not have any food, looking for lodgings and saying, you know, can you please feed us and, and house us? You can appreciate, you wouldn't be very happy, would you? So it's potential, that's why Jesus sent messengers on his way. Jesus is coming, followers are coming. But the reality is, how did, the, uh, how did the messengers get on? Verse 53 gives us a glimpse into this, doesn't it? But the people, uh, we're assuming the people of that village did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. This suggests that Jesus' messengers had on arrival to the village gone, Jesus is coming. I'm sure they probably would have heard of Jesus, but Jesus is coming, but... He's coming through here to head to Jerusalem, which as Galileans would have been not an uncommon sight as they traveled 
into Jerusalem for the festivals, which you know, happened on a yearly basis. But entry and hospitality into this village was never going to be guaranteed because of this tension between the two peoples as the messengers had discovered. But it's, or there's a, a danger, I would suggest, with this verse in particular, that we can pull out meanings and explanations that just aren't there. And we've got to be careful with this in, in all passages. So there is no indication that their rejection was due to some sort of demonic resistance toward Jesus or hostility to the message that he brought. Our passage doesn't tell us that, but some can come to assumptions like that. The Samaritan's lack of welcome, I would suggest to you, was simply due to the general hostility toward Jewish pilgrims heading to Jerusalem. So our third and final chunk, if you will, of this verse is Jesus rebukes a request for judgment. Oh, James and John. The brothers, James and John, took offence to this rejection, didn't they? We, we read that when they turned around and said in verse 54, and when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? All their boldness. It's as if they were remembering the moment, uh, the story of Elijah in the Old Testament when he himself called fire down from heaven to consume the captains of King Ahaziah, that's the one, Ahaziah and his men. Ahaziah and their men which is back in Two Kings, if you'd like to go and read that. Same similarity here. Their reaction seems to fit rather well with the characters that we are led to believe the brothers may have, or may have had, should I say, a fiery character. We probably would have shunned them out of the church today, wouldn't we? You know, no, we, we wouldn't have done. I'm just, some may have done this fiery character, and one which led Jesus to give them the nickname Sons of Thunder. That's a pretty cool nickname, isn't it? Who are you two with Sons of Thunder? Yeah. Get that tattooed on their arm. Sons of Thunder. Well, what is interesting is that they didn't ask Jesus to do this. You see that in the verse. They didn't ask Jesus to call fire down from heaven. They asked Jesus whether they should do it on his behalf, obviously. Now, exposing the confidence, whether that's justified or not, in their believed power to do so in Jesus' name. Lord, do you want us, the verse says, to tell fire to come down from heaven 
and consume them. Now the truth is that being rejected isn't nice, is it? Rejection isn't nice. How many of you who, I don't know, refused entry into a club, maybe in our wilder days, maybe after a few too many cocktails, you know, would have wanted to bring fire down from heaven on top of the, you know, the bouncers at the front. We do weird things when we, you know, people have consumed a bit too much. Or maybe even been rejected. A promotion that you deserve, maybe by someone who is younger than you and might not know more than you and it's just riled you. Fire from heaven down on the bosses who have made that call. I mean, it's a bit harsh, isn't it? It's a bit of a harsh statement, a bit of a harsh request that they made. And we don't truly know the reason for this harshness. Maybe they were defending Jesus' honour. Maybe it was due to the cultural dislike that they had for the Samaritans. We don't know. But what we do know is that Jesus' reply most likely caught them off guard. Quite probably they were expecting Jesus to say, go on lads, you know. But no, it was complete opposite. Complete opposite. And we read in verse 55 and 56, he, Jesus, turned and rebuked them. And then they went off to another village. And it is here in Jesus' reaction that I believe we can learn the essence, the heart of this encounter with the Samaritans. We are not told what Jesus says in his rebuke, but I do believe that we can deduce an essence of what he said, or the essence of this rebuking question. And the truth is that this Old Testament style cataclysmic, sorry, cataclysmic judgment that the brothers desired to bring down upon this village was in direct conflict with Jesus' mission at this stage on the earth. Does that make sense? It was in direct conflict with Jesus' mission at this stage on the earth. Yes, throughout Jesus' ministry, did we or do we not hear countless warnings of judgment? But that judgment wasn't for now. That judgment was for the future, a future cataclysmic, I won't say Old Testament because it's a future cataclysmic judgment to come. It seems the disciples, particularly James and John, still hadn't learnt, they still hadn't understood, and they still hadn't applied in their own dealings with people the lessons they had learnt from hearing Jesus teach and also in how they engaged with people. A lesson I would suggest that many Christians still fail today. Now, we're not going to agree to that, are we? You know, because all of us are really righteous here. But it's true. Even Christians today, we walk around and we've spent years learning Jesus' teachings, 
We spent years what, reading how he engages with people, but we will still go counterculture on that. And we will still stand righteous ourselves and point fingers and pull people out and all of these things. So it's a, it's a struggle that we have today. It seems, just like us, that they still hadn't grasped or understood that Jesus wasn't here to judge the world at this stage, but had come as the ultimate messenger. Jesus came with a life-transforming message of reconciliation, of restoration, of hope, of joy, and of peace. And he also came with a message that would save people from this future judgment if they chose to accept the invitation and to accept him. And that is no different today as it was when Jesus walked the earth. Because are we not his representatives on the earth to share the same message of hope and reconciliation and joy and peace and love that he did when he walked the earth. Same message. A message we are to invite or share with people, that invitation to come to Jesus. Accept him as Lord and Saviour. Accept him in your heart. Follow him and follow his ways. It is probably the most timeless truth that we have in, the, in, our, in our world. 2,000 years and beyond that, going back into the Old Testament days, the message was still the same. Saviour is coming. Accept him in your heart. Believe in him. And you will be saved. The, the disciples knew that rejecting Jesus would have consequences. We know that today, do we not? But they failed to understand that the judgment of those consequences were for this other time. When Jesus returns to the earth at the end of our age, not as Jesus meek and mild. Not as Jesus meek and mild, but as Jesus the warrior king, the righteous judge of this world. That is why he rebuked them. The time is not now. The time is not now. Jesus rebuked the brothers because what the lost Samaritans needed in that moment was understanding. They were a hurt people. They had a lot of hurt against Jews. What they needed was understanding. What they needed was forgiveness, compassion, and love. What they didn't need was condemnation. And what they didn't need was judgment in that moment. One day, they will come face to face with Jesus. 
as, we, as will we, every one of us in this room. And they will face judgments, as all people will. But in that moment, they needed to hear the life-saving good news of the gospel, as our town does, as your neighbours do, as your work colleagues do, as your college friends do, as the person in the shop does, as the person who you're paying your fuel to does in the garage. Invite the band up, please. I wonder, are there any Christians here today who can relate to James and John? Are there anyone? Are there anyone here? I'm asking for you to say yes or no. We know it in our own hearts. Can we relate? to James and John? Are there those of us here today who find it too easy to want to call fire down from heaven on someone or people throughout our week or our week to come who we know we're going to be engaging with because of how they have treated you or for what they have said to you? Do you allow the desire for judgments to overtake your heart and consume you? It's very easy to happen. Now I know, and please hear me right, I know that sometimes cries for judgment and justice are genuine. They are genuine. And I do... And there needs to be an intervention in those. As an example, if you're being bullied, maybe in school the kids are upstairs, but maybe the kids are being bullied in school. Maybe, maybe there are people here who are being bullied in the workplace. Because I know that happens. You need to tell someone. In those moments, yes, we are still to show love and grace and patience and compassion. But he's still got to be dealt with. There's nothing wrong with that. But we don't want to be called and judged fire from heaven on top of that situation. Abusive relationships. Yes, you need to get help. There is help for that. Can I just, I'm going to be a bit sporadic here, can I just ask the, anyone that's involved in pastoral care here, just to stand for a moment. Be brave, be brave and bold. Is everyone up? Everyone's up doing things, are they upstairs? Now the reason that I've, I've, I've asked these to stand is just so you see their face. These people here have got massive hearts. The whole church has massive hearts. Mm-hmm. Let, let me rephrase that. But these particular people have taken that decision to, to actually make it their, their, their ministry, to help people 
and pastoral care related situations. Thank you, guys. Thank you. You know, if you can't speak to someone at work or at school or uni or college or wherever, come and speak to myself or the elders or members of the pastoral care team. Let us help you on those th in those journeys. So there are times for those cries of judgment and justice are genuine, but we need to deal with them in the right way. But in our general everyday life, our flesh will want to call judgment upon every person that does us wrong. Isn't that true? I've said we can call out wrongs done to us and we have to deal with those things in the right way but when it comes to our fleshly reaction of anger because of how we've been treated we have to avoid this desire to want to call judgment upon people according to talking about judgment not judging at the minute there's a whole different message on that we must ask the Lord to help us to calm our hearts, calm this anger inside us, and remember that judgment is the Lord's. Judgment is the Lord's. He will deal with the unrepentant wrongs toward his people at the end of days. Scripture tells us that. When he comes back, he will deal with the wrongs of those people in the world that have done wrong to many and, and been unrepentant of it. But now we need to allow the peace of the Lord to calm our hearts and our anger and our frustrations. Jesus now looks to us to be an example to follow. Jesus does not, doesn't he not show us that joy, hope and love and forgiveness and reconciliation is his whole message throughout it or his whole attitude throughout his ministry on the earth he calls us to follow that's hard, yes we know which is why we have support and which we ultimately have God the Father on our side helping us, helping us through this but ultimately we need to be showing these people in our life who have done us wrong the love, the peace, the patience, the forgiveness. That takes time in certain situations. But ultimately, we also need to be praying for salvation for their heart. Isn't that, or should that not be the prayer? Lord, this person has done me wrong. I pray for their salvation. Was it not, was it, who was it? Um, was it Corey Ten... No, it might not be Corey Ten Boom. No, there was, oh, I forget who it was, someone in the courtroom. It was back in the concentration camps. And she went and she, to the, to the SS guard, who had done wrong, and she'd seen it. She went and forgave him in the courtroom. She forgave him. As always, our model to follow is Jesus, who had, let's be very honest, every right throughout his whole life to call fire 
down upon or down from heaven upon those who did him wrong those people who rejected him who beat him who mocked him and those people that hung him on a cross a sinless man to die the most agonizing death humans have ever concocted he had every right to call fire down from heaven but he didn't what did he say Lord forgive them for they do not know what they're doing Heavenly Father Lord we thank you for your word we thank you for Lord the truth is we don't always find your word easy to follow Lord we've just read this story of well, this event of how when you set your face to Jerusalem and all the emotions that must have been going through your head and your heart as you've begun that journey how you were still seeing rejection and hostility between your created people on the earth and Lord where the brothers may well have been justified in defending your honour to call this fire down from heaven that wasn't your heart's desire your heart's desire and it still is now until you return is that all of your created beings will come to the error of their ways that they will return to you that they will understand the hope and the peace and the joy and the restoration that can only be found in the name of Jesus. Lord, you have given the world to this point over 2,000 years grace, 2,000 year opportunity to To repent and to be saved from what is a coming judgment of the world you didn't we didn't deserve that you didn't have to do that you could have easily have just gone I'm sick of this rebellious these rebellious people I will just destroy the earth but because of your great love you've given us all an opportunity and I'm so very grateful and thankful for that Lord help us when we have those moments like the brothers who just allow our anger or frustration or disappoint, disappointment with rejection or hostility call us to want to into judgment and call judgment upon these people yes Lord we know you instituted in this world a system to be able to judge people and we thank you for that and they do a great job but Lord as your people as Christians help us in their everyday life when we feel like we have been wronged to yes seek help from those around us but ultimately Lord help us 
soften our hearts, to show love, forgiveness, grace, mercy, peace, and ultimately help us to pray for their hearts and souls that they may be restored and saved in Jesus' name.